We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, and it's because we want to consider the question, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? Uh, it's a question that people continue to ask for thousands of years now, for centuries now, and it's an important question, and lots of answers, just lots and lots of answers have been given. Jesus is a teacher. He's a, he's a, a good religious leader. He's a deluded prophet, or he's an exaggeration of his disciples' imaginations. Uh, these are some of the answers that have been given, but they show that more often than not, all of us are prone to define Jesus on our own terms, rather than letting Jesus define himself. And so we go to the Gospel of Mark, this ancient uh, eyewitness, firsthand account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, um, as an opportunity to encounter the real Jesus what he really did and what he really said. And we see that Jesus came to preach uh, the, the kingdom of God. And when he does, we get glimpses and tastes of this kingdom. You know, we see people being healed. We see demons being expelled. We see people realigning their lives and following this man. This is a picture of what the kingdom looks like. And, and Jesus, he's He's revealing to us God afresh. He is showing us a new way of salvation, a new exodus, and, and he's opening this up for the entire world. He's offering salvation by the way of the cross. And along the way, Jesus continually demonstrates an uncommon authority, an authority inherent in him as the Son of God, but also an authority endowed to him by God the Father as he came on a mission to use that authority. And he showed us last week what he came to use his authority for, the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly why he came. And so our passage today, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, uh, we should see this as a continuation of our passage from last week. Uh, in last week's passage, Jesus forgave the sins of a paralyzed man whose friends had brought him to Jesus for any reason other than being forgiven of his sins. But what we saw is that Jesus used this moment as an opportunity to demonstrate why he came. He came to meet our deepest need to offer us forgiveness of sin, to offer us reconciliation. But this week, Jesus, he begins to seek out those who need forgiveness. You see, he didn't come to us um, just when we were searching for him. You know? he, he came to us when we weren't searching for him. He, and even when we do go to Jesus, our motives, they're mixed you know, we may come to him, but for the wrong reasons. We may come to him for secondary issues without ever addressing our deepest needs, which is why, uh, you know, first off, we see last week that Jesus can work with that. You know, he'll work with anything that we bring to him. But this is also why Jesus seeks us out, why he goes out, because we don't always come to him by our own volition. And sometimes we're not even interested in searching for him at all. What we see in our passage today, and this is a profound truth that takes a long time to get into our hearts is that every single person matters to God. Every single person. Agnostics and, and, and skeptics, saints and sinners, the tolerant and the bigoted even, the proud and the, the ashamed, the successful and the broken, those who have it all together and those whose lives are unraveling. Every single person matters to God because you've never locked eyes with someone whom God does not love. Because it's not our strength or our weakness or our righteousness or our sinfulness that defines us before God. And that is the scandal of grace. And that's the big idea we'll be looking at this morning. The scandal of grace, which shows us a better way to God than religion and a better way to God than being irreligious. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at sinners and saints 
and the third way. So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 2, starting in verses 13 through 15. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Do you remember the first calling scene in Mark's gospel? Uh, it, it was in chapter 1. Jesus calls uh, James and John, Simon and Andrew. He calls them and they give up everything and they follow him. And what these first disciples share in common isn't just that they were called together to follow Jesus. But they also share their work. They're fishermen, which was surprising. You know, Jesus, he doesn't call the best of the best like other rabbis. He didn't call the religious protégés, uh, nor did he look for would-be disciples, or, nor did he, like other rabbis, wait for people to come search him out and ask to be discipled. But rather, he sought out common people, fishermen. And it's surprising. Uh, not necessarily offensive, just surprising. Our passage today is the second calling in Mark's narrative, and Jesus calls Levi. It's very similar to the previous callings. Jesus just approaches him, says, follow me. Levi leaves everything behind and follows him. But Levi's work is very, very different than the first disciples. Levi's not a fisherman. He hasn't inherited some family trade. Instead, Levi has chosen his own profession. Levi is a tax collector. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, their calling is surprising, but Levi's calling is scandalous. You might be wondering, what's so scandalous about this? I mean, isn't he just like the ancient you know, equivalent of a CRA agent? I mean, yeah, if you've ever dealt with the CRA agents, like they're frustrating, but they're also so nice that you just can't get mad at them. Like tax collectors, they don't seem that bad. What's the big deal? But tax collecting in the ancient world is nothing like tax collecting today. It wasn't you know, convenient. Like you didn't just see taxes coming off your paychecks and you didn't have like an online system where you could just enter your earnings for the past year and apply as many credits and deductions as possible and just hope for a big fat refund by direct deposit into your bank account. You know, like this is not what taxes looked like in the ancient world. Uh, the Roman tax system was complex. Uh, land and poll taxes generally were enforced by Romans. They were enforced by the powers at large. But taxes on transported goods that were going in and out of cities these were contracted out. And so in the, the, the region of Capernaum, where we, we are right now, these would have been contracted out to ethnic Jews. But they would have been ethnic Jews who were very loose on their Torah observance because a Torah observant Jew would never work with a Gentile. They would not do business with Gentiles. So this is someone who's already willing to compromise you know, the, the accepted beliefs about God of that day for the sake of making money. And so Levi, he's one of these Jewish tax collectors. And, and here's how he would have got his job. He would have had to make a bid in advance to collect the taxes in a given area. He would go to the Roman authorities and say, I'm going to collect X amount of dollars over X amount of time in this region. And if Rome approved, then he would get that region. And he got the region of Capernaum. And he would tax those coming in and out of Capernaum. And, and now, how he made money was, is pretty straightforward. He made the bid and a portion of that bid he would get to keep. But his real profit, his real profit would come from adding extra on top of the taxes that he had already agreed to collect. And the Roman system, they, they not only knew about this, but they depended on it for their system to work. They depended on the tax collector's greediness. And so tax collectors were deeply despised, 
because they were uh, extorting the everyday average person coming in and out trying to do business. Think of moles or informants in Nazi or communist regimes, and the hatred that was felt towards those people would be similar towards the hatred that a first century Jew would have felt towards a tax collector. We have ancient Jewish writings that equate tax collectors to murderers and thieves. They're just as bad. A tax collector couldn't testify in court, uh, was expelled from the synagogue, was a disgrace to their family. Their touch, much like a leper, could make other people unclean. Uh, you know, just to paint the picture a bit further, contempt for tax collectors was so high that you could, according to the Jewish leaders of the day, you could lie to a tax collector, which is a sin in the Bible, just in case you're wondering. You could lie to a tax collector with impunity. It's okay to lie for a tax collector. So if you're ever wondering, apparently there's the exemption. I'm not encouraging it because the CRA will come after our charity status. But uh, anyways, bad tangent. So this is the picture. You know, tax collectors, they're corrupt. They're, they're morally uh, questionable. They've abandoned God's ways. They are, in a way, intentionally irreligious. They're extorting God's people. And they're, you know, in cahoots with the uh, oppressive empire of the day. And Jesus, he calls Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. This is scandalous. And it, it would be scandalous just if it was a one-time event. That would be hard enough to wrap our minds around. But this isn't an exception. An exception. This is a pattern in Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 15. And he, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This, what we see is this isn't just a one-time deal for Jesus. He had a pattern of going to tax collectors, but verse 15 also adds this broader category of sinners. In our culture, we recoil at this term, sinners. You know, it feels very demeaning and negative. Uh, and you might wonder, like, why, does, why do Christians have such a negative view of humanity? A few years ago, I was, I was walking down Hastings Street, uh, uh, which is always an adventure, and uh, a little old lady was sitting like in the middle of the sidewalk. She had this little chair, and, uh, and she, it was like she was intentionally there. though. Like, you know, she could have been on the side, but she was like intentionally making people have to walk around her. And as, as people were walking around her, I could see that she was just handing out these little like bright neon cards. And you know, I, I had to walk by her myself, and she said nothing, and she just handed me one of these neon cards. It was bright green, like, wake you up, bright green. And, and I just took it, because I figured I should take it. She's sitting in the middle of the street. She clearly wants me to have this card. On one side, in big, bold, like, handwritten letters, like, just terrifying letters, it said, repent. And I turned it over. And guess what the other word was? Sinner. Repent, sinner. That's all it said. I just... Thanks, I guess. Like, Jesus really likes green and he wants me to repent because I'm a sinner. You know, I, I wasn't sure what to do with that. You, we, we might even believe that's theologically true. You know, repent, sinner. In fact, if you're a Christian, you must. But simultaneously, it makes us a little squeamish. Is this really the best way that we should talk to someone? Is this really the, the best way to categorize someone? Is this really loving? And if we believe this, do we actually have a negative view of humanity is the critique issued against us true. Our culture, and what makes this so difficult for us, has a very high anthropology. We think very 
positively about humanity. You know, human humanity is just brimming with potential. Uh, it, it can be unlocked. We're mostly good. We're able to change. We're beautiful, complex creatures within this beautifully complex world, and we're able to influence it and adapt to it for the sake of bringing about greater and greater good. And so we find our worth as people, um, not as society as a whole, not necessarily in some sense of being created, but in the sense that we can accomplish goodness with our life. We're able to make a difference. And so our worth isn't inherent because we're just the result of the randomness of, of evolution, but our worth is ascribed to us by the pursuit of the common good. So to call people sinners, in light of this picture, it's an offense, isn't it? It is. It is offensive. But it's not an offense for the sake of being offensive. It's an offense in the face of an illusion. Christianity has a far more nuanced uh, picture of humanity, a far more nuanced anthropology. The Mishnah, uh, it was an ancient Jewish document uh, it, it takes this word sinners and it equates it to the wicked in, in the, the Psalms. And so it's a categorical term. It would say there's the righteous and there's the sinners. This was a group of people. And they weren't just people who made mistakes. They weren't, just pe they, they weren't people who occasionally broke the law. They were intentionally sinning. They fundamentally stood outside of God's law. And so sinners in the Mishnah, they're described in a variety of ways. They're gamblers. They're money lenders. They're people who trade on the Sabbath year. They're thieves, they're the violent, they're shepherds, and of course, even worse, tax collectors. But the worst of the worst in the Mishnah, this, this is like the unforgivable sinner in the Mishnah, was those who race doves for sport. This is in the Mishnah. Do not race doves for sport. I don't know what that entailed, doves and racing and gambling, but that made you really bad, right? So if you're racing doves for sport, you're a sinner. You're outside of God's people. Now, this was the, quite a common picture within ancient Judaism, but Christianity takes it further. This Christian scriptures take it even further. Sinners aren't just a, a category of some people. Paul writes to the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are sinners, not just the dove racers, but all of us. And this is the opposite of what our education systems teach us, what our politicians teach us, what our philosophers and New Age gurus teach us. But the message of the gospel says that we're not even close to being as good as we like to believe. We're actually far worse than we'd ever dare imagine. But, and this is important, Jesus seeks out sinners. We weren't created to be sinners. We were made in the image of God and we became sinners by our own volition in the fall and in our own lives. And so Jesus' pursuit of us isn't based on our own inherent worthiness. As sinners, we're unworthy of his life. But he calls sinners, even when they're not searching for him. And the fact that he pursues us, even the very worst of us, imparts worth to us. Because no one's worthy of being called, but the fact that he calls us makes us worthy. And so yes, we're far worse than we would ever dare imagine, but in Christ we're far more loved than we could ever believe. And so being a sinner describes our predicament. It describes our disposition outside of God's grace. It describes what's become of us since the fall. But in Christ, his love defines our identity. His call imparts our worthiness. His, he's restoring our dignity and the image of God within us. And so the gospel says uh, the human predicament is far worse than the cultural vision for humanity. 
But it also says that humanity's restoration is far more beautiful and powerful than the very best of our culture's vision for humanity as well. But Jesus, he doesn't just call tax collectors. Like that would be hard enough to, to grapple with in the ancient world. The text says he reclines with them. And this is huge. A meal was an intimate and powerful way of establishing boundaries in the ancient world. Jesus dining with these people then meant a lot. It meant he was identifying himself with them. It meant he was accepting them. It meant he was saying that they were worthy of his presence. But this causes offense. You don't disrupt the status quo without any risk. You know, look at verse 16. You know, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, the religious elite of the time, the self-ascribed saints, they ask, why does he eat with these people? And it's not so much a, a statement of question rather than a statement of offense. They're offended that he's doing this. Well, what's the offense? Well, there are rules, and Jesus isn't playing by the rules. For a Pharisee, there are people who are in and people who are out. And, and we do this. We get this. You know, we, we, we play this game of in and out. Uh, say you're having a party and you decide to make an event on Facebook because, you know, it's a helpful tool for having a party. Now, there's an important piece to that, right? Like, you can't just make an event. You have to click invite friends. But then you have the ardent task of having to scroll through your friends and decide who you're going to invite. And how do you decide? Well, maybe you're just going to invite those closest to you. Or maybe you're not going to invite this person because they don't really get along with that person and you're going to invite that person and you don't want to have this awkward thing at your party. Or, you know, maybe it's just your inner circle that you're going to invite. Maybe you just don't really want to be associated with that person in public. You have a coffee with them. You know, like you have your way of selecting who's going to be in and who's going to be out. That's what we're doing when we do that. We're saying who's in and who's out. Or, you know, have you ever had uh, a conflict with a, a close friend? You know, let's, let's say this friend's name is Marigold. And uh, you and Marigold are not getting along. And then you find out Hermes, you know, another really good friend, is having dinner with Marigold. Like, what is your initial response to that? What is Hermes doing? Like, doesn't he know that Marigold is on the out right now? Like, Hermes should be on my side. Like, that, whether we act on this inclination or not, it just rises up within us. Or perhaps you know what it's like to be on the out. You know, especially when it comes to church and, and religion and, and people of faith. Like, you look at everyone in this room and you think, man, these people all up here uh, to have their life together. Like, that guy's wearing a tie. Like, he must know what he's doing. Um, and, and you conclude, I just, I don't fit in here. Or you know, um, you meet someone who says they're a Christian and they think so highly of themselves that they just ooze judgment towards you without even saying anything. And, and they make you feel like you're on the out. And honestly, it, you're glad to be out. We draw circles around who's in and who's out all the time. And we have our ways of determining who's in and who's out, and we have our ways of reinforcing who's in and who's out. And so did the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, those who were in followed their ways and their traditions, and those who were out didn't. And one of the key ways of enforcing these boundaries was the meal. Who you did and didn't eat with signified who was and wasn't with you. And 
the religious elite didn't dine with sinners, let alone tax collectors, because they were above these people. These people were out, out of their club and, and out of the kingdom of God. Because the Pharisees believed that God only takes interest in, interest in and rewards those who blamelessly keep his law. They earned God's approval by keeping all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. And even more than that, if, if say there is a law, right? It's like, don't stand on the edge of the cliff. The Pharisees in their tradition would add an instruction. They'd say, well, don't stand 10 feet from the edge of the cliff just to make sure. Right? So keep that law so you don't risk breaking God's law. And how they performed, how they kept their tradition, all of these things determined if they were in with God. All of these things determined if they were accepted by God. All of these things determined if they were worthy of God. But before we're too harsh on the Pharisees, we should recognize that these were people who took God very seriously. They were devout. They were religious. And the problem is that our religion can get in the way of a life-giving, love-receiving relationship with God. Sometimes even our very own religion can get in the way. Well, how so? Well, how do you assess how your relationship with God is going? Deep down, you have a spiritual check checklist, right? Did you pray today? Did you pray for the right length of time today? Did you pray for enough people today? You know, did you read your Bible? Did you read the right amount of your Bible? Did you tweet a verse? You know, did you share your faith? Did you share your faith multiple times? You know, were you kind? Did you help a stranger? Have you been generous? Did you serve someone? Are you humble? Are you humble enough? And, you know, have you confessed your sins? Have you confessed all of them? Have you missed one? And the list could go on and on and on. Of course, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But often we consider ourselves close to God when we look at our own spiritual checklist and have most of it checked off. We think, oh, yeah, I must be acceptable before God. And when we don't feel like we're performing well, when we haven't prayed enough or read the scriptures enough, you name it, all of a sudden guilt accrues and we start wondering if we really are accepted by God. We start worrying that we aren't doing enough because our lives don't look like the measure we've set upon ourselves. And the very fact, the very fact that we have a spiritual checklist at all shows that we're leaning into our religion rather than leaning into grace. What we see in the scribe's question, why is he doing this? Is that the human heart is deeply religious. By default, we divide the world up into in and out by default, we assess our relationship with God by how well we have achieved our set of the rules. And this is ingrained with us. Our hearts beat by the drum of self-righteousness. You know, am I better than that person over there? Then I must be okay with God. Have I done all the right things today? Then I must be okay with God. But this is not how God operates. This is not how God operates. So far in this passage, we've seen two approaches to God. There's the people who want to be in, and there's the people who want to be out. There, the, those who are in are religious. They perform, and they do the right things. And those who are out are irreligious. They don't care. They do whatever they want. And Jesus scandalizes both groups with grace. There's a third way. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard what they asked, he said to them, those who, have well, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Since Jesus came to reconcile us with God, since he came with the authority to forgive sins, then we shouldn't be surprised that he's associating himself with those who need forgiveness. We shouldn't be surprised that he's associating himself with sinners and tax collectors and the outsiders of society. They're the, you know, the intentionally irreligious. And so he says, those who are well, they've got no need. Those who are righteous, they've got no need. But wait a second. Is Jesus saying that there are indeed some people who are well? There are some people who are righteous. Does it mean that the religious people who think they are in really are in with God? No. It means that those who think they're in because of their performance have missed what Jesus is doing. They think they're righteous. They think they're well. But they've given themselves this label and they have no need because they look to their performance. They look to their religion. They look to their moralism. And so they don't see themselves as needing God's mercy or grace or forgiveness because they think that God owes them. And so they've become blind to their deepest need. They, they don't see that they're actually avoiding God as Lloyd, Lord and Savior. I, I guess they could avoid him as Lloyd. Uh, because they, you know, they, they see their self-righteousness as their saving power. They see their self-righteousness as their saving power, and so they don't need God. The scandal of grace is that even the most pious person in our midst needs grace. Even the most religious person needs forgiveness. Because being right with God isn't based on what we can do. It never has been. It's based on what Jesus has done. It's based on Jesus declaring sins forgiven. It's based on Jesus giving us his righteousness rather than us cultivating a righteousness of our own. And so our worth before God isn't found by us deeming ourselves worthy. Our worth before God is given to us by Jesus dying for us. And we can't earn our way into God's presence. We can't keep all of the rules. We'll never be worthy enough on our own. We only receive our way into God's presence by accepting the forgiveness that Jesus offers. But does that mean then that the irreligious got it right? You know, should we just throw caution to the wind because we can live however we please? No, because they too have been avoiding God as Lloyd, Lord, and Savior by ignoring him altogether. You know, they, they live for themselves just as much as the religious do. The religious live for their rules. The irreligious live for their freedom, which is just their own rule. And so their need might be more apparent in this text or to religious people, but it's the same need. Jesus is meeting them where they are, but he's also calling them to receive forgiveness. And so he's saying, you can't just keep living this way. You do need to repent and believe. And this is important. It means that Jesus isn't throwing boundaries out of the window. He's not creating a new inclusive community that's a free-for-all where you can live however you please. Now, people love to talk about how inclusive Jesus was, but I fear that sometimes we talk about that as if Jesus just includes everyone and never really transforms them. And yes, Jesus is never shows partiality based off of sexuality, gender, or ethnicity. Jesus is far more radically inclusive than we'd ever truly be comfortable with. But he invites people, sinners and tax collectors, to follow him, to stop rejecting God, to stop living in self-destructive ways. And when he calls them to follow him, in Mark's gospel, that includes the call to repent and believe. Which means Jesus, he's drawing the new boundaries of God's kingdom around himself, which makes sense because he's God. So whether one is in or out is defined solely 
by how they respond to Jesus. And Jesus shows us that life in the kingdom is concretely different than how the religious or irreligious were living before. So he's radically inclusive, but he still has boundaries. And it's not changing our behavior that brings us into the kingdom. It's being brought into the kingdom by sheer grace that changes us. In other words, we're not saved by changing ourselves. We're saved which changes us. So, there's the religious approach to God, proving yourself before him, standing above others. There's the irreligious approach to God, rejecting him altogether. But both approaches are a way of avoiding God. The only way to God is through the gospel of grace. The only way to God is through Jesus who comes and offers us forgiveness to the religious and irreligious alike. Because all people before God are categorically sinners. All people, though, matter to God. As I said earlier, the saints and the sinners, the skeptics and the agnostics, tolerant and the bigoted, the proud and the ashamed, those who have it all together and those who are unraveling. Because only Jesus, our great physician, So he calls himself in this passage, the physician. Only Jesus can make us well. And only those who accept his call to follow and come to him asking for forgiveness will find themselves in, will find themselves in the kingdom of God. And the response is easy. We repent and we believe. But it requires then that we abandon all our ways, whether they're religious ways or irreligious ways, that we cling to the gospel of grace. And really quickly, I think this has two implications for us as a community, for us as a church. First, we're not a holy club. We're not pious. And I just want to be clear about this. There's no such thing as a good Christian. We're a hospital ward for broken people, religious and irreligious alike, being made well by our physician. Which means we're a gathering of imperfect, broken people in the process of being transformed by the loving hands of our Savior. And lastly, this means then for us as a a church that doesn't want to exist for ourselves, but also for the sake of this city, it means that we can never go into the city standing above others. Because we might actually meet people who are more morally Uh, impressive than us, or more righteous than us. We might meet people who have their lives put together in greater ways than us, who have no interest in Jesus, but we're not saved by our performance or our self-righteousness. We're saved by grace, which means we can never stand above anybody. Rather, as D.T. Niles has said, Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's our mission in the city. It's telling people where we found grace, and how every single person, regardless of how great you are or how bad you are, needs grace. Because you're never so far gone uh, as to have outrun the grace of God, and you're never so great and accomplished as to have, have outrun your need for grace. Because the only way into God's love, the only way into a worth that will transform us is by accepting the grace that Jesus offers as he forgives our sins.